This is not a new America. This is the same America. This is the same realities of injustice. What we have right now is an opportunity because people are listening. And now that people are listening, my hope, my bid that I want to put out there into the universe is that people don't stop at listening. They transmute that to action. The question so many of us are asking is what kind of action? What is the work that we can do to make meaningful change in this country in this moment when so many are demanding it? I'm Andrew Wolk, and this is Finding Common Purpose, the show exploring how to build a 21st century social contract to put more people on a pathway to lifelong success. Before the current wave of protests, before the shocking and yet all too familiar brutality used to kill George Floyd, in a time that seemed so long ago, but in fact was not, I had an eye-opening conversation with an inspiring young leader. My name is David Delmar Sentias. I'm the founder and executive director of Resilient Coders. Resilient Coders is a Boston-based coding bootcamp for low-income people of color that also helps place its graduates at partner companies offering well-paying coding jobs. David and I talked about his efforts to dismantle the barriers low-income people of color face when trying to start careers that actually pay enough to live on. You'll hear part of that conversation later in the episode. But in this moment of widespread protest, I wanted to talk again with David, who identifies as both Latino and white, about his views on how providing real access for people of color to good-paying jobs is a crucial part of addressing the systemic racism they face every single day. And we have had an opportunity to hit the streets and protest, and that's great and it's important. But there are broader ways to fight systemic injustices off the streets. An example of this is we can bring the protest from the streets into the office. Make a cultural shift at your office that allows us to begin building alternate pathways to prosperity in the city that don't depend on the traditional four-year degree. So as the founder and executive director of Resilient Coders, you provide training and help graduates access high-growth software engineering jobs. I'd love to take one step back, and then I'll come back to your your call for action on allyship is what I would say. Um, what's going on with the current employers? Have they stuck with you? Yeah, it's it's been it's been rough. We've had uh, at least ten more companies um, who had committed pull out. Uh, and those are just that's just because of the economic fallout of the pandemic. Uh, we have had the benefit of having companies who are allied with us, who are sticking with us through through this this hardship. Uh, one of the things that ha- that I have yet to determine is I, I suspect that we're going to see a backsliding among some companies. And I'm not referring to all of the companies that had to pull out because of the economic fallout of COVID. That's just that's just math. But I suspect that we're going to see a couple of companies backslide on their understanding of what it means to hire and employ equitably because they see themselves as not having time to do that right now. I would challenge that notion, right? First of all, what better time than right now, right? As we are reinventing as we are reinventing our businesses and reconstructing them from the ground up, we have an opportunity to re-examine the foundation, right? Do our companies have a foundation of equity above which we build a culture? Or do we really secretly think of equity as a sort of window trimmings that we set up to the structures that we rebuild just as they were before? I suspect that we're going to have a lot of companies who take this approach to equity where it's like, well, once we are stable, whatever that means, 
Uh, once we are back to where we were in 2019, we will come back to this idea of equitable employment. And I, I think that that's unfortunate. Uh, I think that we have a really wonderful opportunity right now, since we are all rebuilding anyways, to rebuild with equitable employment at the foundation of our cultures. So you you wrote, you tweeted, I think it was you, you know, enough with the empty blog posts and tweets about solidarity, hire people of color into high growth careers, build movement to daily actions. And um, besides just listening, what, 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 what do these actions look like? I think that we uh, as a society have a propensity to talk we, and we tweet and, and we write and we, and we express, but then it doesn't come with action, right? And we just sort of descend into a culture of slacktivism. We don't have time for slacktivism right now. The same folks who are out there hashtagging Black Lives Matter too often are the same folks who are enraged by the phrase thoughts and prayers, right? I, I feel like without getting political, I, I feel like there's a certain segment of folks typically on the left who become enraged at the idea of thoughts and prayers that happen at, at whenever there's another mass shooting, which is routine now. And I want to put it out there into the universe that hashtagging Black Lives Matter and then not doing anything is the same thing. That's thoughts and prayers. In terms of specific actions that people can do, there are many. And I almost think it depends on the person and their situation, what they do. If you are far removed from it, the uh, ability to hire folks, uh, you, can, you can donate, you can uh, have continued conversations to spread your mentality beyond your own cranium to those around you. You can protest, you can, there's the whole host of things. Uh, if you work for a company that hires people and pays them well, from my seat as uh, the ED of Resilient Coders, I would argue that I would want folks to advocate for the, for the recruitment uh, and the equitable employment of Black and Latinx people uh, into their companies. Uh, and I get a lot of pushback um, that people might not necessarily know how to do that. And look, this breaks down into two, there are two different profiles of obstacle, in my opinion. There's don't want to and don't know how, right? If you, if you don't know how, that's great. That's fine because we can, that person can learn and will learn. If you are don't wanna, then you gotta get out of the way. Something that I've really grappled with as a, as a white male of privilege is this contradiction between listening and learning and acting, and when you act, are you then superseding, you know, the headlines of the people you're trying to give voice to, right? And I think to myself that in order for us to get more white allies, if I make an act, I want my white allies to see that so they can feel that there's a comfortable space to act in, right? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. If you had someone as an employer who did something in this moment you thought was important, it would seem like it would be good to um, tell that story. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. If what we're talking about here is the racial dynamic of action uh, and what is the role of the white ally in a moment like this one, uh, I would say that uh, moment. this is a moment not to, to lead, but to support. Um, I think this particular moment in American history needs to be led uh, by people of color and specifically by black people. You and I can do our best to support those voices who have uh, that have traditionally been unheard, amplify, and uh, have the humility as white men specifically to act in service to other leaders. I want to thank David for talking to me again. 
I can't tell you how much I learned just in that short conversation. So thanks to him in this tumultuous, important, and hopeful moment. Now you hear my original conversation with David about just how deep and pervasive the barriers to good job opportunities are for people of color, contrasted with how whiteness can push the door to opportunity wide open. When I sat down to talk with David in those days when you could actually sit down next to someone, I asked him how he got the idea to start Resilient Coders. I'm a little bit of an odd duck in that I am um, both a white male, but also Latino. I grew up in a Spanish-speaking home, uh, and that culture, that language, um, really means a lot to me. It's a big part of who I am. Um, The reason that's relevant is because I didn't really recognize about myself and about my professional trajectory that folks had taken a a pretty steep chance on me over and over and over again, largely because of, quite frankly, my whiteness and maleness. And at a certain point in my career in the startup world, I looked around me and had this moment where I was kind of like, you know, where's where's mi gente? Where's the other Latinos? Where are people of color in tech? And I started peeling back layers of the onion and discovering that there were all kinds of incredible, very real systemic barriers that kept certain people um, away from the tech economy. And it's not just tech, right? It's the entire economy as a whole. Uh, There are a lot of frightening numbers out there that I wish everybody knew, everybody had tattooed on the insides of their eyelids. Tell me about some. Well, the fact of the matter is that since 1980, wages for the bottom half of earners in this country haven't budged at all after accounting for inflation and social safety nets that have been built up around them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the economy has been stagnating since 1980, right? Uh, Corporate profits have actually jumped from 6% of GDP to 9% of GDP in that same amount of time, right? So what's happening is that we have folks making tons more money, the top 1% of earners in this country, they've seen their salaries increase threefold. CEOs in this country have seen their salaries increase ninefold. At some point over the course of the last generation, we have rewritten the rules of society. We have rewritten who it is that has access to our pathways of prosperity in this country and who does not. Tell me about Resilient Coders then. What does it do? How does it do it? Um, Tell me a little bit about it. Well, we are a coding bootcamp, a very highly competitive coding bootcamp. Uh, we work exclusively with uh, people of color from low-income backgrounds. Uh, we bring them into the program. We subject them to a very rigorous 20-week program. And at the end of it, they're ready for careers as software engineers. Uh, we've been doing pretty well in terms of our placement. Almost all of our students um, nowadays go to work at full-time jobs as software engineers at our partner companies. And the reason why we do this is is not because we think that getting people to code is is awesome necessarily, um, but because we want entire communities of folks to rise along with their property values, right? I like to say that, look, I live in Eggleston Square, and for me, it's about my, my bodega, my corner store, right? I needed to stay there because I need to get my coffee at my corner store. And the only way it's going to stay there is if my neighbors have the same kind of purchasing power that I do. Right? And so as that entire area, that part of the city continues to become more and more expensive, I need everybody who lives there to continue living there. One of the ways to do that is to make sure that we provide viable on-ramps to the high-growth careers that allow people to stay there. So tell me a little bit about who these people are, their backgrounds, or 
you know, from everything from their high school dropouts, if they are, or they high school graduates and didn't go on to college, or they people who went on to college but couldn't find a job. Yeah, so they're young, they're young adults. They're early in their careers. They are beyond high school between the ages of 18 and 30. Most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, do not have a college degree. Um, most of them, I think about 60% of them, attempted college and had to drop because they couldn't afford it. Um, this is the other unspoken secret in Boston, right, which is, we have constructed for ourselves in this country, but especially in the city, this myth of college. We have built a gatekeeper, right? We've built a gatekeeper to wealth, which is called college. And many of us have bought into this narrative that once you go through college, you have a viable and meritocratic chance at becoming one of those one percenters who sees their salaries treble, right? It's not working. It's not working. In our communities of color, we have about a 20% college completion rate in this city. That's madness. And it's obviously not because of any sort of lack of intellectual capacity, right? And even in those incredibly rare instances in which college is actually free, it's still expensive. Who out there can afford to depart from the workforce for four years? That's madness. And so I believe that it is time for this country, and especially this region, to really have an honest conversation around whether or not we believe education to be a civil right. Because if education is a civil right, we need to contend with the idea that some people can pay for better access to their civil right than others. We are selling access to a right. Creating opportunities for success outside the high school to college pipeline is one way to address these inequities that David Delmar Santias has been talking about. Now, I wanna point out that this part of my conversation with David was recorded before the massive protests against police brutality and before the coronavirus pandemic. But the obstacles facing workers of color trying to make their way in corporate America are looming as large as ever before. Here's David. There's the actual institutional barriers, and then there are the barriers that are a mindset that people bring to these conversations. People say some pretty wild things to us, right? We've had employers say, well, this individual is not a culture fit, to which we kind of said, like, yes, we know. <laughs> That's the point. We had someone tell us that, well, they just need all of their entry-level developers to be forward-thinking, and this person said that without having seen a single resume or spoken to a single person. They just assumed that our students somehow were just not forward thinking, whatever that means, right? So that's the mindset piece that needs to be mentioned. But the other thing are the structural barriers that we put in place that are um, classist and racist. I think the most obvious example of this is requiring a BA. Uh, to require a BA to do a job that does not require a BA is just fundamentally classist, right? We've had someone say to us before, we don't even care what the degree is in as long as they have the degree, right? Now, if you think about that for a moment, what they're saying is we would like to find a legally permissible way to discriminate based on someone's parents' ability to pay for college, right? So like a degree in, you know, I don't know, 19th century horticulture is better than no degree, having spent those four years working. That's madness. And it's classist, right? Now, the other thing is that there's a, 
stack of studies, yay high, that continue to say that uh, SAT-style assessments continue to skew white and male um, for all sorts of reasons. And so to conduct an SAT-style assessment is also sexist and racist, right? And so if a recruitment process, A, requires a BA, and B, requires passing some sort of assessment, it's just not going to be equitable. It's not going to be meritocratic. You're going to continue to surface white men all day, every day. I believe that this dynamic is beginning to change um, and be more inclusive of white women. Mm. But it's... But stopping there. It's stopping there. I also think it's worth mentioning that a lot of companies have, that have diversity and inclusion efforts are aimed at a kind of a, a pantheon of profiles of candidates that fit some sort of diversity bucket, right? Which includes both people of color and white women. Uh, but the obstacles that are set in front of white women and people of color are different obstacles. That's not to say that any is more severe or less severe than the other. Uh, they're just different. Um, for example, white women are, I believe, the most educated demographic in this country right now, right? And so requiring a BA is going to disproportionately affect people of color and not quite as badly affect white women, right? So these are the little considerations that I wish people would, would think of if and when they roll out diversity and inclusion efforts. So um, clearly you're placing people in jobs. Um, so what is it about the employers you're working with that's having them think differently? What's working there? Yeah, well, it's two things, right? There's the, there's the sort of commercial viability, um, and then there's what I call sort of visioning. Um, now, what I mean by this is that it's, it's like hearts and minds, like, like the mission. Like People believe in our articulation of meritocracy, uh, but also they just need to be able to code, right? Nobody is hiring out of Brazilian coders for the feel-goody-good goods, right? They're hiring out of Brazilian coders because they're damn good coders, Right. And so that's something that needs to be in place. We just produce phenomenal coders that compete with college graduates for those jobs because they have to be able to compete with college graduates for those jobs. So none of the people that you're placing in companies, the companies are making a particular change. They're just coming in with a strong enough competitive ability against a college graduate, and those companies don't have those barriers in place? Is that what I'm hearing? No, I'm, I'm, that's not quite what I'm saying. Um, I think that they are also making a change, right? I think that you have to level the playing field first, right? So those companies are approaching resilient coders already with a mindset. So they, by the time they come to us, Got it. they already buy in on some level to our vision of meritocracy, to yeah. our vision of what workforce is and should be, right? Um, now that said... Once they come to us, once they want to hire out of Brazilian coders, once they realize that there's some, uh, some truth and some value to hiring out of Brazilian coders, um, they're not going to hire someone who is technically inferior to another entry-level candidate, right? And so the technical skills have to be there. So if I were to sort of repeat back what I think I heard you say and then can go a little deeper, for the, for the employers that are hiring your people, first they're coming with... It's a little bit of a combination of changing their mindset and removing their barriers. So they, they're sort of predisposed to be bought into, they've created a gate that they want to remove. They buy into this, you know, the, 
removing sort of a meritocracy sort of positioning. And then by doing that, you're also showing up with exactly who they need. And it's that combination of those two things that makes it a good match. That's correct. We essentially have to tell two different stories, right? So one story is to um, sort of executive leadership at a company, which is to say, this is what you should be doing as a corporate entity, as a civic player, as a participant in the construction and re-envisioning of civilization in Boston. This is what you should be doing. But the VP of engineering needs to ship product. And so he or she is not necessarily going to be swayed by that argument. They just need this individual to be able to write good code. You know, if you're willing to, can you name some of the companies that have totally bought in and are also, you know, taking your coders in right now? Absolutely. One of our strongest uh, partners right now is Wayfair. Um, so Wayfair has been hiring a bunch of our coders. Um, Constant Contact, Perkin Elmer, um, Massachusetts Medical Society. Uh, whew, there are a bunch. Uh, the Broad Institute. Um, so we're starting to ramp up relationships with a whole host of companies um, that are giving our coders a shot, and they're coming back to us. So I'd be curious to know, um, I think if I heard you correctly, that your primary bottleneck to growth is getting more employers. And and to get more employers the way you see it, you need to, at the senior executive level, buy into sort of the the purpose. And at the sort of hiring level, they got to buy into the fact that you've got quality people. I'm really curious to hear... um, Bringing race into the conversation, um, making that a, a primary focus of the barriers. I'm curious if you're, if you ever get a feeling that maybe doesn't allow you to get through the either of those two doors right now. You know, I think this is an example of my white privilege. I think that I am allowed to speak about race in a way that people of color, frankly, are not. Hmm. I believe that sometimes when people of color speak about race. Sometimes they can feel as though they're being judged as as being sort of self-serving, right? Uh, I think that sometimes when people of color speak of race, they can they're they're wary of being perceived as complaining or coming up with excuses, or even how the other side will see it, regardless. Exactly. I also think that people of color are just for a thousand reasons are going to be more cautious hmm. when talking about race with white people. Interesting. Um, I think that many people of color have also had uh, terrible and sometimes even traumatic experiences trying to have candid conversations about race with white people. And uh, I think that we tend to be more permissive, uh, quite frankly, as a society, uh, when the person speaking about race is white. Hmm. That's really, really quite interesting. So it's interesting that your story of being um, part white male and part Latino led you to recognize the barriers, systemic and structural and barriers that exist for people of color, which gave you your passion. But it's interesting that your whiteness, if I'm hearing you correctly, is opening some doors that are critical to let them actually enter them. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that I've, I've discovered about myself that some people, I'm, how can I say this? Uh, some, to some people, I am Latino. To some people, I'm white. Uh, I'm obviously both, um, and I have made my peace with the fact that those are two different windows into the same house. Um, and so if I'm telling a story on behalf of our coders, and your entry point 
of engagement with that story is one in which I am Latino, so be it. If your entry point with that story is one in which I'm white, so be it. So as a white male sitting here in front of you, I'm, I'm fascinated with this topic, by the way. Um, I've given it some thought, and I don't want us to digress too much, but um, what message do you have for those who are white and of privilege um, who sit in a position of, of, of power and, um, and oftentimes are actually out there trying to do good? What message do you have for them about the position that they have and the role they can play in, in these situations then? Listen. I swear to God, it's just listen. Um, I have learned a tremendous amount by just sitting down and listening to people. You know, I used to believe that people spoke, you know, I used to envision sort of like a a, a walnut, right? I used to think that somebody's personal story and bias was this thick shell that you had to crack through in order to get into like the empirical reality, right? Right. And so you had to kind of like understand someone's perspective to, in order to be able to dismiss it and understand the kernel of truth inside. Uh, and as I've gotten older, I've discovered that that shell is actually the valuable part of that communication. Is that it is someone's perspective. It is someone's bias that is a, a, a much more worthy piece of information, much more insightful nugget of wisdom than the actual you know, empirical truth, whatever that may mean inside of it. My conversation with David Delmar Santias, founder and executive director of Resilient Coders, will continue in our next episode. He'll tell me about the kinds of social gymnastics many coders of color have had to engage in just to get a glimpse of career mobility. They wear the right, the, the quote unquote, the right clothes. They they speak in quote unquote the the right way, right? They wear their hair in a certain way, and I don't think they need to do any more contortions. You'll hear more about David's efforts to dismantle the barriers between highly trained workers and the companies that need them, and how the leaky training to jobs pipeline is often made even leakier by the funders themselves. That's next time on Finding Common Purpose. You can learn more about Resilient Coders at resilientcoders.org, and you can read about my conversation with David at andrewwolk.com. Doug Slaywin with Satellite Sound Recording is our sound engineer, and Rachel McCarthy produced the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. It's the best way to make sure other listeners can find us. Thanks for listening to Finding Common Purpose.